You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. I'm so excited to have a wonderful uh, doctor from New York that's going to be joining me in just a few moments. Uh, Her name is Dr. Elsie Coe, and uh, Dr. Coe is the medical director Chief Informatics Director and Regional Medical Officer of Azura Vascular Care. And she's going to be sharing her story with us in in just a few moments. Uh, Be sure to stay with us as we go into our breaks to hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors from Jefferson University Hospital, Tivity Health, Pathways Consulting, and Fortis Wealth, and also Hanadi Shahabuddin for our Diversity Watch. Uh, And also... Feel free to check out our website at womentowatch.net to see our lineup, which we have scheduled through April, I believe, at this point. Uh, Feel free to sign up for our newsletter. And if you're on social, social pages, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We love hearing from you and always uh, welcome the opportunity for referrals and feedback on the show. So now I'm very honored to have with us this evening again, Dr. Elsie Coe from Azura Vascular Care. Elsie, welcome to the show. Hi, Sue. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm I'm honored. Oh, well, I'm honored to have you as well. And you have such an interesting story in that you've really kind of stepped outside of your um, doctor position to do additional work on top of that, which I don't know how you find the time for, but um, (laughs) some really inspirational work for women. And I'm not sure whether you work with men as well, or is it strictly with women you're coaching? I'm actually coaching both women and men, but it just a lot of women, uh, especially physicians are attracted to me because of my story. Yeah. So I'm really open to whoever uh, could need some help from me. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, let's start, um, give the listeners a, a little bit of background on you. You were born in Louisville, Kentucky, but brought up in a very small town in Princeton, West Virginia. Um, first, I wanted to ask wh- why the move? What took your family from Kentucky to Virginia? So my parents immigrated from Korea 
and my dad was in training as a resident in pediatrics. And he basically had very little money and he had two little kids to feed. And, you know, during the time of the Vietnam War, West Virginia was in dire straits for a doctor. And they said, please come and help us. You're a pediatrician. We will pay you. Uh, I think back then it was like 40 grand, which is a lot back then. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have to have your license yet. (laughs) I don't know if I should say (laughs) that on the air. But but he and and he's like, you know what, I'll just I'm I'm just going to go and I'll check it out and maybe I'll move out. I'm not sure. And he ended up staying there for for his entire career because he helped so many people who are the indigent people, the poor people. There was such a need. He was like flooded with patients. So he felt like he had to stay. Okay. And, you know, you grew up in what you describe as a very homogenous small town in Virginia. And from what I've read, you're West Virginia. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. West Virginia. Um, Mm -hmm. And your parents um, very much instilled in you their Korean culture and values uh, with you and your two sisters. And I wanted to ask you how those conservative lessons, I'll say, um, worked against your ability to stand up for yourself. Right, because in Korea, in Korea, um, you know, Koreans are very, um, you know, it's a completely different culture, at least for my parents' generation. Um, And you are not to speak back to your elders. You're not supposed to look at them straight in the eye. Um, There's a lot of, you know, you could even see it with the Asiana airline conflict that happened with the crash. Uh, There was that, it was a hierarchy thing between the the younger pilot and the older pilot. It's the same thing. It's very hierarchical. Um, And it's definitely instilled a lot of great family values. And I, I feel blessed to have that, but it didn't work for me for medicine because I was not able to stand up for myself in the way I needed to in order to thrive in that kind of scenario. Now, my mom told me there's no way I would survive in Korea (laughs) with the way I am now, (laughs) because she'd say, I came home from medical school and I started changing because I knew I had to change myself. I had some bad experiences that I had had to deal with, and I, I made a decision to change. And so when I went home during medical school, my mom's like, what happened to you? You used to be such a nice girl, and now you're talking back, you know? <laughs> well, and I said, Mom, yeah. I have to. Wow. So, I mean, talking back is one thing, but questioning? How about um, yeah, just those instances yeah. where you're curious and you're questioning and wanting to learn? Was that frowned upon as well? Yes, absolutely. Like, I mean, you know, God bless my dad. My dad would say, you know, why Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Because he was disciplining us. And if we said, because, and you'd say, be quiet, you know, because mm-hmm. we couldn't. So I didn't, I felt like I kept, I was such a closed person. I felt really shy. Now, my younger sister is completely different from I am, but I really took it in what he was saying. So I wouldn't talk back. I wouldn't speak up what I thought, even if it wasn't like a conflict, even just telling my roommate in college, can you please close the door and talk outside in the hallway because I'm trying to sleep. I couldn't even do that. Wow. Wow. Yes. I had, so I have a quote here. You said, I was known to be a very obedient daughter, never talking back and just accepting <laughs> what I needed to do. And so that's right, who you exactly. were growing up. But tell me how you're different today. And if there was a moment that you remember that first time you you did speak up, I would imagine you remember that. Yes. I mean, actually, there are a few moments, but one really comes to mind. When I was, I was an intern in New York City at Lenox Hill Hospital, and um, I remember during a time when there was AIDS was rampant. 
and you know not like today there were actually AIDS wards there were a lot of sick patients and I was frightened because I went to go take some blood out of somebody's wrist uh, a man who was in a private room and I couldn't get it I couldn't get the uh, the blood from his wrist in the radio artery and he was getting frustrated with me so he took the syringe with the needle he is an HIV patient with AIDS and he threw the needle across the room past me and I, you know, here I am, this first-year resident, it's called an intern, right out of medical school. I don't know what the heck I'm doing still, and I'm still learning. So I was sh- I shook up, and I, I was all shooken up. I, w- I walked to the nursing station, and I said, I'm, I'm not taking care of that patient. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. And the charge nurse just went at me, you know. She said, young lady, you go in there. I don't care what you, you know, this is your responsibility. And I, I couldn't say anything back to her, you know, and that's when I knew there's something wrong with me. I gotta, I gotta change. Mm. Like I can't even speak up for myself. This is wrong. Yeah. So I think I started my personal uh, journey that way. Okay. That's how it all began. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go into our first break. When we come back, I want to talk about your years at, at boarding school. Stay, oh, okay. <laughs> stay with us for Dawn's ear of Nutrisystem for our CEO watch. We'll be right back. Women to Watch, CEO Watch. Hi, everyone. I'm Dawn Zier here with today's CEO Watch. Today, I want to talk about fostering innovation among your team. Innovation is the number one lever to growth, so it's important to set aside time from the day-to-day for ideation. Rare is the brilliant idea that gets fully fleshed out in the shower. There's structure and process that enables bringing outside of the box, fresh thinking to the table, and moving it from a germ of an idea to a fully developed concept. In my experience, some of the best ways to foster innovative thinking and creativity are, one, train your team on how to ideate. Effective ideation is not necessarily intuitive. If you've ever been to a brainstorming and ideation session, the process at times seems haphazard and often uncomfortable until it all comes together at the end. This is an intentional process. Early on at Nutrisystem, we invested in bringing in a transformation agency from and its CEO, Howard Tiersky, to train several people within the organization on how to run these sessions. Money well spent. Two, prioritize. A great idea poorly executed is a fail. Prioritize and rally the troops around what you will invest in and put energy against it. Throwing a lot of ideas up against the wall and hoping one sticks rarely works. Also, increase your odds of success by focusing on areas where your company has at least some expertise and are uniquely qualified in to win. Three, know what success looks like. Set clear deliverables, KPIs, and go-no-go decision points. Make sure that you've done a robust business case with an ROI to support your decision. Know what outcomes you're measuring for and measure rigorously. And four, make failing safe. The bigger the idea, the more risk associated with it. Give yourself time to measure and iterate for success, but also create an environment that rewards failing fast if the KPIs are not being met. Thanks for listening. I'm Dawn Zier here for CEO Watch. Have a great week. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. 
In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. If you're just tuning in, uh, I have a wonderful guest with me this evening, Dr. Elsie Coe, who is the Medical Director, Chief Medical Informatics Director, and Regional Medical Officer of Azura Vascular Care. Um, that's quite a mouthful. And <laughs> you have a lot on your plate. Um, you also, I want to mention this right away, because it's one of the highlights of your career, you pioneered a vascular procedure um, that is minimally invasive. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the show, but I want people to know that, um, you know, that's really one Thank of you. the most impressive things that you've done in your medical career. But we were talking about, you know, your younger years um, growing up. And I think that attending a boarding school at 14 years old, um, I'm sure had an impact on you um, and and who you are today as a leader. So tell me what that experience was like. Were you happy to be away at a boarding school or or was it something that you, you know, uh, had to struggle with? Okay. <laughs> I didn't have okay. a choice. I, <laughs> again, I again, no Virginia. choice. <laughs> <laughs> my, my parents sent me away because they wanted to have a better education. And um, it's five and a half hour drive from my home. So I saw my parents, I saw my mom once a month. And I, it was a cultural shock because mm. I'm living away. Here I am still this prepubescent, uh, like failure to thrive, <laughs> short, small kid who's quiet and I didn't grow until you know sophomore year in high school and so it was it was tough for me compared to my sisters I think because I'm was small I was always the small one like the runt of the family and I and because I was so closed and it was it was really hard on me and you know what's the funny thing is I didn't people I tell this to people now and they're like I don't believe you I'm like I don't believe who you were back then. Right. I'm so yes. different now. Yeah. And my mom's like I'm like my mom just told me a few years ago that it was really hard on her too. I didn't realize it that you know sending her kids away like that. Oh. So, and let me ask you this: Does your mom know today how you and your sisters felt growing up, and ha- and how has she responded to your openness about wanting and needing to be um, more open now as an adult? Yeah, so actually I, I confessed to her just a few years ago how I felt. And let me tell you, there were tears coming down my face. And mm. I could hear her crying a little in the in the back. So I was emotional. I didn't realize that she felt like that. I thought, you know, that it was no big deal to her. It's kind of funny. And I don't think she realized how I felt. Yeah. So well, I think it made her sad, too. Yeah, I bet. Because it's a cultural thing, which... Um, mm-hmm. So your mother was probably raised that way, right? And then just right. continued right. those same types of lessons and and values in her children. Right. And, yeah. you know, we never used to say, I love you. And we never used to really hug when I was growing up. But now I think we all become more Americanized and <laughs> embrace some of the good parts 
uh, of whatever culture we're, we're embracing. And we, we say that regularly to each other on the oh. phone, getting off the phone, whatever. Oh, and that's hugging what... each other every time we see each other. So. Wow. Wow. That's, that's yeah. wonderful. Um, yeah. T- what, what age did you recognize? How old were you when you recognized this in yourself? And did you make a conscious decision? Um, I am now going to always stand up for myself and speak up. So it wasn't until uh, later, after my probably, I mean, I knew I had a problem in, high, in college when I couldn't tell my freshman year roommate to step outside. This was something, and then I got in a fight with my best friend because she didn't understand, not a fight, but a misunderstanding, and she was bawling her eyes out in the hallway because she thought I, she had some prior trauma. She thought that I wasn't talking, it was like some drama, like she, she thought that I was telling her I don't want to be your friend anymore, but meanwhile, I just wanted to tell her that why didn't you call me and you're hanging out with this guy? And it was like ridiculous. Right. You know, it's all these like the way we're brought up. We can't communicate with each other. I knew that from college that okay. I needed to change. Yeah. So yeah. in your 20s. Yeah. Yeah. In your 20s. Yeah, eight, late, late, late teens to 20s. That's when I realized. Yeah. So tell me about um, what. When did you decide that you were going to go to medical school? Was that something you had always aspired to? So I always wanted that from second grade. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. Well, first, I wanted to be a homemaker in first grade, and my mom said that's not a real job, which I realize <laughs> now it's a real job. Well, it is a, a real job, job, but it doesn't pay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and so then I, I guess I identified with my father, but I really loved, uh, I always wanted to know what's going on inside of us. Wow. So medical, mm-hmm. you know, that's hard. <laughs> you have to have some book smarts and, you know, intellect and um, to get through medical school. What what were those years like for you? Was that something that came, you know, fairly easy to you? Uh, I think the, the subject and testing and all that stuff came pretty easy to me. It's just that uh, dealing with patients and speaking up for myself and not being able to direct the conversation in such a way that I wasn't being taken advantage of. Um, and I, you know, I remember like in medical school doing an internship and a patient was taking advantage of me instead of me taking control of the situation. Wow. Wow. Uh, I, I don't even think I should say that on the air about what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you got the job done, right? So those internal yeah. conflicts, I think, that we have are right. are one thing, right? But our ability to perform whatever, you know, whatever job we're doing is another, which which you did. And so when did you decide to go into the particular field of medicine that you chose? So How did that I come chose, about? Right. So that was in medical school, the fourth year at Tufts Medical School. I could, t- I could choose what internship, a sub-internship that I wanted, and I chose interventional radiology. Okay. Absolutely loved it. I loved the personality of the type of doctors that it attracted. People are fun. The fact that I can use gadgets and devices to help patients and technology is always changing. I'm... I get bored easily. I just wanted to do something that was cutting edge. That's why I chose that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you certainly did. And we're going to go into another break. When we come back, I want to pick up with um, what led to this um, procedure that, that you pioneered. Stay with us for Dr. Marianne Ritchie of Jefferson and Fortis Wealth for our Finance Watch. We'll be right back. Now, the Women to Watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Have you ever had a fainting spell? Has a friend or relative? It can be frightening to see someone pass out, especially if they fall down and hit their head. About 35% of people who faint sustain an injury. The medical term for fainting is syncope, S-Y-N-C-O-P-E, temporary loss of consciousness. A very common cause is vasovagal syncope, a reflex reaction to a trigger like fear, bad news, or a scary movie. 
maybe acute pain like a broken bone, the sight of blood, having your blood drawn, extreme heat like a soldier in a hot uniform standing too long. In turn, the heartbeat becomes very slow, the blood vessels expand causing low blood pressure, then when blood doesn't reach the brain, you collapse. Sometimes it happens when patients have a very sensitive nervous system and the simple act of bearing down to urinate, pass a bowel movement, cough or sneeze can lead to fainting. Usually there's some warning sign like sweating, blurry vision, feeling lightheaded or dizzy, nausea, others say it'll pale. Afterwards, your pressure may be low for a while and you can feel quite tired. But usually an episode lasts for a minute or two with complete and rapid recovery. Fairly common problem, about 20% of people. But it's not always so innocent, especially in adults. Some very serious causes for losing consciousness include head trauma with a concussion, intoxication from alcohol or drugs, infection in your bloodstream, low blood sugar, hyperventilation, maybe even a psychiatric cause. An elderly patient may take medicine that slows the heart too much or water pill that dehydrates them. There might be abnormalities like a weak heart muscle, damaged heart valve, and if it can't pump effectively, decreased flow to the brain, and so on. If someone faints during exercise, think abnormal heart rhythm. And if fainting does happen with a heart history, it could signal a much more severe event in the future. And neurologic changes or confusion can represent a stroke or seizures. So divas, fainting is not some romantic trance you're in when you hear Elvis saying, take care of yourself, get checked out. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. The Women to Watch Finance Watch. Hi, this is Maggie, and I'm from Fortis Wealth. Today, we're joined again by Jen Fields, who is a certified public accountant and manages the Fortis tax team. Welcome to Women to Watch again, Jen. Thanks for having me, Maggie. So what type of year-end planning tips do you have for our listeners? Now is a great time to sit down with your tax professional to discuss year-end tax planning. Since we've had a year to digest the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, your tax professional should have a better idea if you will be taking the standard deduction which doubled in tax year 2018, or itemizing your deductions. If you are charitably inclined, it may be advantageous to bunch donations to charities in specific years while limiting donations in other years. Essentially, the taxpayer gives the same amount to charities, however the timing of when they do so allows them to benefit from the contribution if they are below the standard deduction threshold. Something else to consider is the donation of appreciated stock rather than cash. The donor's charitable deduction will be increased as it is based on the fair market value of the stock rather than a cost basis. Also, by donating directly to the charity, you can minimize the impact of capital gains tax. Another standard year-end tax strategy is tax loss harvesting, which is when you sell investments at a loss in order to reduce your tax liability. 
You can use this strategy to offset capital gains that result from selling securities at a profit. You can also use tax loss harvesting to offset up to $3,000 in non-investment income. Lastly, if you are a business owner, there are other strategies to consider to possibly reduce your 2019 tax bill. Again, now is the time to consult with your tax advisor. That's great advice for sure. Thank you once again, Jen, for all of that wonderful information and for joining us today. This is Maggie, and on behalf of Terry, peace out. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Welcome back. I'm having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Elsie Coe. And um, I wanted to talk about this again. This really a highlight of, of your career was pioneering a vascular procedure. And my first question was, you know, what led to that? Can you talk about kind of the journey of discovering that? Right. So I've done, first of all, I've done a lot of personal development on myself because of where I came from and how I was in my in my field. And, you know, it's a a male-dominated field. It was only 1% women when I joined. Mm. And nobody would ever think I'm a doctor when I go to the conferences at the exhibit halls. It wouldn't help me because they think I was a doctor. But um, (laughs) so I I did a lot of personal development. And so I'm really brave these days. And I I realize that all of us have infinite potential. It's just a matter of believing ourselves and dreaming and going for our dreams. So I dreamt of always, and this was my executive master's thesis, of having a one-stop shop for these dialysis patients because they go to so many different specialists for the same problem, which is their access, their, their, the shunts that they have in their arms that they need to live. The needles go in there to clean out their blood. It gets clogged up. They go to so many different places just to get the care that they need. Why can't we have one-stop shop? So that was my goal in 2015 when I did my, my uh, um, executive master where I started. And then this new technology comes out. And, you know, we, you know, in order to have one-stop shop, we needed vascular surgeons in our company. It was very hard to get them to join us for many reasons. They, you know, they're invested in so many other kinds of surgeries. Why would they want to do just that, help us with the shunts in these dialysis patients? So this new technology came about, and it was like a no-brainer. I'm like, I've got to get this. I've got, and I'm brave, right? I'm a brave thinker now. And I said, I don't know how to do this. I don't have the right equipment. I don't even know how to do it. I don't know how I'm going to get it, but I know I made a decision I'm going to do it. So I called the vendor. I, uh, I just so happened to be going on vacation in Paris with my family, and the guy who did most in the entire world was in Paris. So I somehow talked to my husband into using a part of my time in Paris to go visit this guy in the hospital. And, um, and then I, next thing I know, I set up a few patients in my office, and I was the first in the tri-state area of New York to do it. And it is unbelievable. It's exactly what we need for our company, and we're actually going to launch that in our company um, going forward. The reimbursement's here. It finally came for 2020. It's going to help these patients live better lives and longer lives because we're going to be able to deliver a one-stop shop. Wow. So how many times has this been performed? Is is So this is really not in the United United States, not that much at all. It's been in Europe and Canada because the FDA has very stringent guidelines to get anything new. So Mm -hmm. we're usually behind um, Europe when it comes to new innovation. Okay. Because one of my questions was, what did it feel like to perform this for the first time? So is it something that you've done yourself in Europe? Right. So, yeah, I watched it and then I did it. And so it's, um, you know, it's not that different from a lot of the other procedures that I do because, you know, it's ultrasound guidance, using a needle, going through a needle, using a wire, using a balloon, 
all those things I do already. It's just a matter of a different technique and a different area and a different concept with a, a, a device that's new that was different. I mean, it was a little scary. I have, I'm not going to lie to you. Right. There's always because, risks, right? There yeah, might not there's be, always a yeah, risk. Right. And, and I, I am tachycardic, even though I, I appear to be very calm. <laughs> that means my heart is fluttering. Yeah. I could feel my heart fluttering, even though outside they're like, wow, you're so calm. Like, you don't really know what's going on right. me. but 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 it, it it's it's worked and it's working so well and it's actually not that hard so why can't all other doctors learn how to do this this yeah. is this is the goal for so, these patients okay so you're bringing it here to the US and it it probably will become very um uh, or, widespread yeah. for sure Excellent. for sure yeah yeah and i actually you know again with my brave thinking and now that I, I realize my worth, and you know, a lot of women need this too. They need to realize what they're worth and believe in themselves, because you can do more than you believe. Uh, you can even imagine. So I, I called the chairman of my national society. I haven't gone to this meeting in seven years. I said, "Hey, is anyone talking about this?" He goes, "No, but here's a slot for you." And next thing I know, I'm moderating the entire session for our national meeting in Texas, and that was this year. And I invited people from all around, including Germany. I got someone, a vendor, to pay for it. And uh, it was, and people were telling me, oh, no one's going to show up. It's the last day, the last hour. Everyone goes home from, I'm like, great. You know, and I was like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not listening to that. I'm not going to, it's going to be successful. So I posted it as, like, on the brochure, it says, F, newly FDA approved um, endovascular procedure for dialysis patients, something like that. Mm-hmm. And our room was full. Wow. Our room was full. Wow. So it was amazing. Yeah. That must have been exhilarating. Um, yeah. So you mentioned the word brave and, and you really, you know, went through a kind of a, pers- a transformation, a personal transformation that has absolutely um, spilled over into your work. And so you decided that you were going to teach others about the, the kind of the mind body connection and the impact it has on our relationships, our work. Um, you know, freedom and health. And I really want to hear from you. What made you decide that you wanted to take that on, you know, helping others with it? You know, transforming yourself is one thing, but then saying, I'm going to share this with others. Because, yes, because what I went through and how I have developed myself as a leader, I know that other people can do it. I and mean, if I can go from this shy little meat kid who couldn't, who couldn't even tell her roommate to step outside to talk on the phone so I could sleep, to coming to being a brave thinker who can do new innovative breakthrough technology for patients. I mean, the sky's the limit for anybody. And that's why I decided to start coaching, even though that wasn't my initial intent and getting personal development. But I said, I said, you know what? I know I can, you know, even, even my niche, a lot of, a lot of people come to me or physicians and then I thought, you know what, I need to do this for our country. I need to do this for healthcare. Our physicians are not taught. We're not taught in medical school how to be great leaders. We're taught how to give orders, to dictate, uh, to tell uh, people what to do. We're not, we're, we don't know how to learn to collaborate. What is that? What's collaboration? What's, what's communication? You know, it's, it's completely not in our culture, and we're just so geared in a, in a straight path. We don't think outside the box. So I think uh, my future is going to be not only just, uh, women and uh, people who want to excel in life, but there's going to be uh, a, a company that I'm developing right now 
on, it's on the cusp, and I don't want to announce it just yet, but it's on the cusp. I'm going to develop a physician leadership program for physicians by physicians. Mm, I love that. You know what? I, I'm excited when we come back from this last break to talk to you about the connection between what you're doing and how it relates you know, to doctors better serving their patients. Right? That's that, right. That human yeah. connection. Uh, stay with us for Hanadi for our Diversity Watch and Pathways Consulting for Technology. We'll be right back. This is the Women to Watch. Diversity Watch. Diversity Watch. Peace be upon you all. This is Hanadi with your weekly diversity segment. It's hard to challenge a big problem. It's even harder to believe that you're the one who's meant to fix it. Initiating change, whether on the personal level or on the macro level, is an ethic that we need to train ourselves to do very early on. When I came to this country 11 years ago and saw the negative perceptions of Muslims in the media, I was overwhelmed with negative emotions. How will I survive this? How can I be who I am? How will I raise my kids here? These were the questions that I was busy with. The question of what can I do about it came at a much later stage, not until I started thinking positively and take on the next small step. Today, change is happening and this program is a proof of that. Taking initiative and starting reforms that benefit communities is a prophetic ethic that prophets were sent out to do. You'll see a lot of Muslims drawing inspiration from their lives and stories. Bringing about positive change and contributing to the common good is a responsibility that starts with each and every individual and ends up affecting our entire community. This doesn't just include socioeconomic affairs that affect us, but also environmental problems that still await our contribution. Quote, the most loved people to God are the most beneficial to people, end quote, said Prophet Muhammad. The connection to the creator is indispensable from the connection of creations within themselves. In other words, I cannot claim to be connected to a higher power if I'm not working on my relations with fellow human beings around me, those I agree with and those I don't. Initiating positive change and reforming is today's last prophetic ethic of 52. We've been together for a whole year, sharing Muslims' prophetic ethics as a way to find common values, establish common grounds, and promote understanding between our communities. I hope you enjoyed this journey of creating a more inclusive America. This is my last chance to remind you to connect with me on hanadispeaksout.com. Who is Holly Dowling? Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives. And her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. Everything you do online leaves a trail of breadcrumbs called a digital footprint. Things like leaving a comment on a blog, updating your status on Facebook or LinkedIn, emailing, posting a photo, using Google, etc. And other people can add to your digital footprint. As example, someone tags you in a photo. Your digital footprint is permanent, and when compiled, builds a profile of who you were and who you are. It's very hard to remove traces of your footprint. In some instances, you might want to increase your footprint to gain better exposure depending on the type of business you're in. In other instances, you may not. Either way, it's important to be mindful that your footprint will follow you wherever you go, so it might be worthwhile to take certain precautions. 
first step to understanding a little bit about your footprint is to Google yourself. What you see is what others will see. As example, many employers will Google potential candidates to see what type of information is out there about a future employee. When I Googled my name on the first landing page, I appeared three times. When I looked up my images, I appeared four times on the first landing page. And when I looked at videos, I appeared eight times on the first landing page. I didn't have to go any further than the landing page to see what types of information I'm appearing in. Then I Googled my name and town I live in. Everything on the first landing page was about me. I could see information about my divorce, I saw my childhood address, and much more. And most of the sites I appear in, I've never even heard of. In my next segment, I'll take you through some steps on how to protect your digital footprint and precautions you can take. Until then, for fun, if you set up a MySpace page years ago, look for it. I guarantee it's still there. If you have any questions on this topic, email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Elsie, we were talking about the importance of physicians learning, um, I'll just say more people skills, right, outside of uh, the science and the, and the medical um, technical skills and procedures that they do. It really is so important. And um, I wanted to share this quote. You said, I believe in a culture of safety and a more humanistic approach. Describe that for me, what, what that looks like. Right. So instead of just seeing a person, a patient as, you know, somebody we need to give something to, someone to give them treatment, give them medicine, give them a procedure, we need to see that person as a whole. And, uh, you know, every person has a story. Every person has a reason why they are the way they are. We, we approach them, we get upset, like the physicians in general get upset if a physician gets upset at, as a patient gets upset at us. And we get upset because why are they getting upset at me? I'm the one who's trying to help them. You know, um, you know, I used to be like that. I used, I, I used to be a bad leader. I, and I and I recognize that and I admit it. And I'm I'm I share that with everyone because I think it's going to help other people understand. Um, we're not geared to be great leaders because that's, we're just not taught. It was whatever culture you grew up in is what what the patient gets. Um, we, we just know the science behind what we need to do, and then we deliver it in the way that we we know how. Right. Instead, we need to step up as leaders and understand this person as a human being who has thoughts, feelings, and a, and a background that we don't understand, but we have to be sensitive to that, that fact. We have to understand the patient's sick. That's why they're cranky and upset, not because it's your fault or you did something to them. So I completely changed my approach. Somebody told me just years ago that I made every single one of my staff members cry at one point at Christmas party, and I was floored. I couldn't believe that. I said, are you serious? And she said, yeah, it was on a party bus. We're going to Manhattan. And it just, it was like a wake-up call. Like, what the heck? I, you know, here I am, a stronger woman, doing my thing, successful, uh, helping patients. What do you mean I made everyone cry once? And, and then I had to step back again and say, what am I doing wrong? And I re- realized that I need to step out of myself and be aware of each individual person as their own, as their own human being, their own spiritual being, having a human experience, and realize that um, I need to listen more. I need to listen more, stop talking, be aware of what they're coming from, 
take in their comments and be somebody from instead of top down, bottom up, understand from the bottom up, employees first, okay, understanding, be accountable to them and not just them being accountable to me. So now in my office, we have very low turnover of our staff because they absolutely love working. I love working with them. I spent, we spend more than half our lives together. We have to understand each other. I, I, I freely take in any kind of criticism, comments, whatever, from my staff, and they know it. They appreciate that. I appreciate them as much as they appreciate me. That's the type of environment we need in healthcare, okay, in whatever organization you have, hospital, office space, whatever, big organizations. And so my goal is to teach this to physicians, knowing where I came from, and not saying every doctor's like that. Some doctors innately have that ability, but there's a lot of doctors who don't. So that's where I think I can help make a difference. And that, that way, you know, executives in healthcare companies don't want to hire doctors. I've heard this at the American College of Healthcare Executives meetings, at our my executive master's at Brown. I heard them say doctors make the worst leaders, and they're right. <laughs> we do, because we're not, but it's not our fault. So uh, we can learn. Yeah. We can learn, and then we should be at the forefront of healthcare change and not be the bystanders. Wow. We know how to take care of patients, and we know that if somebody takes away uh, EEGs, which is a test for the brain, on the weekends because some administrator says we don't need it, but the doctors know that we do need it, we absolutely need that, then we should be the ones at the top making those decisions, not having someone else tell us. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're I do. Yes. Yes. That that needs to be from from a physician standpoint as well. I think anyone listening is going to be fascinated by what you're saying because, in general, you know, painting a broad brush, but again, doctors, phys- physicians, um, mm-hmm. typically don't have the people skills, perhaps because again, they were learning the science and techniques. Um, that was the 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 main focus. And so can you, you know, and you'll hear people say, gosh, I went into the doctor's office and he had the worst bedside manner ever. (laughs) Right. Right? And there is no listening. There's just you're in, you're out. And and nine times out of 10, you go home and you think, gosh, I didn't get to ask any of the questions I wanted to ask. And this is about me and my health. So and part of part of that has to do with our broken healthcare system where we're only allowed to see, see patients every five minutes, you right. know, and we don't have the time. Yes. So that's another problem. That we is, I know. I, I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. We could do a whole show on, gosh, the, the health care system in the U.S. And, you, oh, you God, know, yeah. if don't I were... Get me started. <laughs> <laughs> well, give me one, you know, I wanted to ask you your views on that. And, and I think what's scary for the, us is that when doctors themselves don't agree on which way we should go to have a better health system... You know, we're kind of at a at a loss for will things ever get better. So, is there anything positive you could share? Um, yeah. So, um, I think the the you know we're going to have a doctor shortage program pro- problem. The doctor shortage problem is getting worse because eight, doctors are a lot of them are in their sixties. They're going to retire. We're not replenishing our supply from the from the uh, back end um, because the residency programs are limited. They're locked in a certain number. And our population is growing. We're going to like double our, it's going to be like 100 million people by uh, 2060. And so we don't want, I mean, like we, we are just, there's too many people, they're aging population, we don't have enough doctors, and now doctors are getting burnt out. Why are they getting burnt out? Because they don't have control. They don't have sense of control. They, uh, people are telling them what to do. There's all this administrative work. There's less time with patients. This is not what I signed up for. Yeah. So my goal is 
show the doctors how to be great leaders, show them that they have control of their lives, have them be partners at the top so that we can, we can shape our healthcare the right way mm. so that we can, we have doctors staying in the system instead of leaving to do side gigs. Right. Yeah. Or how about the um, the influx of PAs? So, you know, very often we're treated by a physician assistant rather than the doctor themselves. Right. I mean, for without a doubt, there's some great PAs and great nurse practitioners, but they shouldn't be replacing a doctor. Right. You know what I mean? In general. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the way we're moving towards in this in this country. And we don't we want to keep our doctors. Yeah. We want to keep them. We just need both. We need both. Yeah. Um, listen, I wish we had more time and we'll have to have you back on the show for an update because there's so much more we could talk about, Elsie. But thank you so much for sharing um, so, so openly much, your story. I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> Hope you. I don't get in trouble. <laughs> no, you better not. You be- hey, this is what the show is about. <laughs> That's it. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much to my sponsors and advertisers for helping me to bring you the real story behind her title here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.